When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our story in a moment, but first, let's talk about music. We have featured a lot of Ohio-based artists like Victor Samala, Molly Morgan, Whiskey Pilot, and many, many more. If you go to ohiomysteries.com and select Featured Music from the drop-down menu, you can find all of these very talented artists. If you are an artist from Ohio or know someone who is, and you would like to feature your music on our podcast... Send us an email at feedback at ohiomysteries.com. Now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. It's time to dig up a new mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder. With us, as always, is our storyteller and award-winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories with the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. Tonight is our final installment in a series looking at three of the most significant codebreakers of World War II, all from Ohio. First, we told you the story of Joe Desch, a civilian at the National Cash Register Company in Dayton, who broke Germany's famed Enigma cipher machine. Then, we shared the tale of the other Dayton-born dynamo, Joe Rochefort, who decrypted the message that led to America's victory at the Battle of Midway. Now, it's time to hear about one of the giants of American cryptology, a woman they came to call the First Lady of Naval Cryptology, Agnes Meyer Driscoll. She was born Agnes May Meyer in Illinois on July 24, 1889, to Gustav and Lucy Meyer. She was the third of their eventual eight children. Gustav was a German immigrant. Lucy was a direct descendant of Roger Williams, who founded the original colony of Rhode Island. At the age of six, Agnes's family moved to Westerville, Ohio, a city that straddles Franklin and Delaware counties in the middle of the state. Her father had taken a job teaching music at Otterbein College. Reportedly, Agnes's parents were severe, demanding obedience. But with or without that motivation, Agnes was a genuine wunderkind. 
and not at all the typical woman of the era. After graduating from Westerville Public Schools, she attended Otterbein University for a couple of years, pursuing technical and scientific subjects. Then she transferred to Ohio State University. She graduated from OSU in 1911 with a Bachelor of Arts, having majored in math, music, physics, and foreign languages. She was fluent in English, French, German, Latin, and Japanese. Oh, and she played the piano beautifully. After graduation, Agnes moved to Amarillo, Texas to teach. And by 1918, she was head of the math department at Amarillo High School. But this prodigy was destined for something much, much bigger. At the time, the United States was several months into World War I, and the U.S. Navy was struggling to fill stateside jobs as it needed its men over in Europe. So the Secretary of the Navy made the far-reaching decision to allow women to enlist for the first time, and a large number of them heeded the call. Among them was Agnes, who, one month shy of her 29th birthday, resigned her job at Amarillo High, traveled to the Navy's recruiting station in Cincinnati, and enlisted on June 22, 1918. She was given the highest possible rank for a woman, Chief Yeoman, which is basically a sailor whose duties are administrative or clerical. First, she was sent to Washington, D.C., and put to work reviewing telegrams and letters for indications of espionage activity. Then, she was transferred to the code and signal section of the Director of Naval Communications, where she began her lifelong calling of cryptology. World War I was over in a matter of months, and the yeomans were demobilized, but Agnes made use of an option that allowed her to stay with the code and signal section as a civilian. At this time, the Navy didn't really have an organization explicitly charged with intercepting and decrypting radio traffic. Mostly, they were concerned with about how to protect its own communications. And before Agnes came along, they mostly did that by using the Western Union code for its secret messages. Basically, it was a cipher you could buy at a bookstore for 10 cents. So Agnes, pretty much a self-taught codebreaker, set about developing a cipher machine for the Navy called the CM, using the emerging technology of its time. It was the Navy's first real effort at cryptography, and the CM remained its standard for nearly a decade. Many years later, in belated recognition of her work, the U.S. Congress awarded $15,000 to Agnes and the widow of her former boss at the Code and Signal section, Lieutenant Commander William Gresham. Agnes had invented the cipher principles that were used in the system. Gresham had figured out how to turn it into a machine. Apparently, Agnes and Lieutenant Commander Gresham 
also teamed up on other things, including an anti-aircraft gun that could locate planes and shoot them with deadly accuracy. It operated on a sound wave principle, a mechanism that was credited to Agnes and Gresham. By 1923, Agnes may have thought her ability for advancement as a civilian working for the Navy was limited. Despite her successes, she was only earning $1,600 a year. So she made the leap to the green pastures of the private sector. This change started as an effort to solve a puzzle. Agnes responded to a publicized challenge to decipher a supposedly invulnerable cipher that was produced by a machine. She cracked it. The guy who had invented that machine, Edward Heburn, had hoped to market the machine to the Navy, so he hired Agnes to come work for him and make it better. She stayed with Heburn for two years, but his machine could never deliver on its promises, and the Navy welcomed Agnes back into the fold. It was during that brief two-year stint away that Agnes got married. Her husband was Michael Driscoll, a lawyer for the U.S. Department of Commerce. Agnes was 36 years old, and it had taken that long for her to find the right man. Her family often said she had no patience for dumb people, so it was a good thing Michael Driscoll was pretty bright and came with a stellar military background to boot. had been a captain in the Army, was part of the expedition against Pancho Villa, and served with the American Expeditionary Forces in France during World War I. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Now, on Agnes's return to the Navy, she was assigned to Lieutenant Lawrence Safford. You may recall that name from our previous episode about Joe Rochefort. Safford was in charge of a new mission at the Code and Signal section to create a cryptanalytic department. It was initially called the Research Desk. And for the next 18 years, Safford and Agnes Driscoll would work together to create the Research Desk and later evolve it into OP-20G, the Navy's code-breaking unit. Actually, years later, Safford would say the whole reason the research desk was formed to begin with was because Agnes had left the Navy. They felt the loss badly and wanted to make sure that they had commissioned officers in place learning the trade so they wouldn't be dependent on a civilian who had the flexibility to leave. By now, Agnes was back and they were thrilled to have her. 
Most of their efforts were concentrated on Japanese communications because at the time, there was a lot of tension between the two countries, especially on the topics of China, colonialism, trade. You see, Japan was an island without the kind of natural resources it needed to be a world power. Tokyo saw its only option as conquest. So, to the United States, this seemed a recipe for future conflict. Obviously, they had no idea what was coming. The attack on Pearl Harbor in World War II was more than 15 years away. But fortunately, they saw enough to be worried. And Agnes was there to give the U.S. a big head start. She set about working to decipher the Red Book. That was the Imperial Japanese Navy's secret operations code. The Japanese were always adjusting their code, and it was Agnes's job to stay on top of it and keep up with the changes. I should mention that sometimes she was working with Safford, and sometimes with Dayton native Joe Rochefort, who, as I said, was the subject of our last episode. I want to believe that they got along splendidly. They certainly seemed to share a few traits. Rochefort was known for being completely unfiltered, and Agnes, some said, could curse like a sailor, which she used to be. As for how others saw Agnes, it's hard to say. The attractive, fair, blue-eyed woman they came to call Miss Aggie eventually earned widespread respect, but there can be little doubt that in those early years, junior officers who graduated from the Naval Academy at Annapolis, then assigned to take cryptology lessons from a civilian woman, were probably somewhat resentful. I mean, if you think about it, women had been denied the right to vote till 1920. After helping to break the Red Book Code in the 1920s, Driscoll made a very significant breakthrough. She solved a cipher system that was being used by the Japanese as they conducted their Grand Fleet maneuvers in the summer of 1930. An analysis of what she learned revealed they were carrying out the practice of their defense against a secret U.S. Navy strategy known as the Orange War Plan. Basically, it was the plan on how we would deal with Japan's home island, if it came to that. Well, the only way for them to know what the Orange War Plan was, was for Tokyo to have gotten their hands on those plans. So you can imagine deciphering that code was something the U.S. Navy was very thankful for. In 1931, Agnes realized something was wrong. A new boss, Captain Thomas Dyer, had taken over the research desk. And as he was looking over some radio traffic, Driscoll came up behind him, looked over his shoulder, took it from him, and said, This is a new code. And that was the end of the Red Book. The Japanese had a new code to decipher, 
and the advantage of knowing their plans was gone for the next three years. During that time, Agnes led the effort to unravel the new secret communications, what the Navy called the Blue Book. Later, Safford would praise the breaking of the Blue Book as one of the great feats of cryptology. One immediate response to that success was the Navy decrypted a message that revealed the top speed of Japan's new battle cruiser was 26 knots, which caused the Navy to change the requirements of its own U.S. North Carolina-class battleships to exceed 26 knots. And when the code changed yet again in 1935, Agnes was there to take on the Japanese M1 cipher machine. It's really interesting to see how men viewed Agnes Driscoll throughout all of this, maybe even some insight into how Agnes viewed herself. The boss she worked under when breaking the Red Book, Joe Rochefort, described her as exceptionally capable and that he considered her to be one of his teachers. The boss she worked under when breaking the Blue Book, Thomas Dyer, referred to her as absolutely brilliant. Another supervisor, Edwin Layton, said, I had been warned not to patronize Madame X, as her colleagues sometimes referred to her, because she was sensitive to her role as a woman in a man's world. Because of this, she kept to herself as much as possible, and none of us was ever invited to socialize with her and her lawyer husband. While she could be warm and friendly, she usually affected an air of intense detachment, which was heightened by her tailored clothes and shunning of makeup. It was surprising to hear Miss Aggie curse, which she frequently did, as fluently as any sailor whom I have ever heard. In 1937, Agnes was involved in a serious traffic accident that took the life of two others. Her jaw and her leg were broken, and it took her a year to recover. When she returned to OP-20G, she used a cane and did so for the rest of her life. But her skills were still sharp. By the time Japan attacked the U.S. fleet in Pearl Harbor in 1941, she had already made inroads into deciphering their new operational code, JN-25. It was the most complex code to date, involving three separate code books, a 300-page book of random additives, and an instruction book. But Joe Rochefort would be the one to make the biggest inroad into that code, enough to give America the huge victory at the Battle of Midway in 1942. Agnes was gone by then because the Navy had her now focusing on the other front in World War II, the fight against the Germans. They wanted her help on Germany's Enigma cipher machine. But after almost two years in this new assignment, 
Agnes and her team were unable to make progress in solving the device. Some say it was probably because Agnes had never used machines to break a code before and was unwilling to try it. Ultimately, the enigma would be broken by our fellow Ohioan, Joe Desch. Make sure you check out the first episode in this series to hear his story. Agnes continued to work for the government in various capacities until 1957, including stints with the Armed Forces Security Agency and the National Security Administration. She retired at the age of 68. Just as with Joe Desch and Joe Rochefort, credit for all that Agnes Driscoll did came long after her death. There was no fanfare when she passed away in September of 1971, no obituary reciting her accomplishments, not even a formal recognition from the Navy, where she had served for 40 years, or the NSA, her most recent employer. She was buried next to her husband in Arlington Cemetery, her name simply etched onto the back of his grave marker as the spouse of a veteran. But she was inducted into the National Security Hall of Fame in 2000. And in 2017, she was remembered in Westerville, where her childhood home at 110 South State Street was given a historical marker that recalls her pivotal role in American cryptology. That home, by the way, was donated in 1909 by her father, Gustav Meyer, to the Anti-Saloon League. Today, it's home to the Anti-Saloon League Museum, as well as the Westerville Local History Center. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to ohiomysteries.com. Also, for more shows like ours, head on over to KillerPodcasts.com. We are a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. Uh, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home.